0: And to begin with, I want to, I want to take you back to the year 1920, and I want you to imagine a slow-moving train chugging its way across the American landscape going from Cairo, Georgia to Pasadena, California. In the train, there is a single mother and her five kids. Imagine that, five days, going cross-country, single mom and her five kids, her youngest son. Is One, his name is Jack, and you know him as Jackie Robinson. Uh, When they arrive, there's Jackie Robinson there. When they arrive, uh, Jackie's mother, uh, Mally, does two things. Number one, she gets a job as a domestic servant. And number two, she takes her kids to church. There's the house they lived in, still there in Pasadena, California. Um, As Jackie grows up, um, he is a church-going little kid. Her mom, uh, his mom, wanted Jackie more than anything else to entrust himself to Jesus Christ. However, as Jackie is growing up, he gets in with the wrong group, and he joins a gang, That gang is not like today's gang, it's a little bit different. That gang mostly robbed street vendors and threw dirt at cars, not a big deal. But he's going in the wrong direction. So Jackie's mother calls on this man, Reverend Carl Downs, uh, and says, will you please get with my son and help him grow? And he does. And within several weeks, uh, Carl and Jackie are hanging out together and Carl gets Jackie to help teach the Sunday school class. And here's young Jackie, and he's teaching a Sunday school class in the local church. Well, meanwhile, he's excelling in athletics. He, he uh, letters in four sports in high school. He goes on to UCLA, and he letters in four sports at UCLA. He's the first athlete at UCLA to letter in all for sports. Now, I I will tell you that what I found amazing about this story is that Jackie Robinson was a star football player, and he would get done with his football games on Saturday night, and he would wake up early Sunday morning to teach his Sunday school class at his church. And there are stories about him being sore from the game the day before. No matter, he goes back and he teaches these kids. And these kids loved having a star football player at UCLA, teach their Sunday school class on a Sunday morning. I will tell you, this this, uh, Carl Downs is an amazing guy. And when I read uh, Ed Henry's recent book called 42 Faith, what I realized was that Carl Downs' relationship with Jackie Robinson was discipleship at its absolute finest. Carl Downs discipled. Jackie Robinson in every sense of the word. So Jackie Robinson gets into baseball before he's with the Dodgers. And Jackie Robinson says, I I think, maybe, I might be the one to break the color barrier in baseball. And Jackie Robinson senses this as a calling from God and he, he's praying about this, he's sensing that God is doing something. Well, push the pause button on Jackie Robinson's story for a second. I wanna introduce you to another guy. Here's Branch Rickey. Here's Branch Rickey and his office in New York. Branch Rickey, like Jackie Robinson, grew up in a Christian home. Branch Rickey, like Jackie Robinson, had been discipled when he was in his younger years. And Branch Rickey, like Jackie Robinson, felt called by God to break the color barrier in baseball. What's interesting about both of these guys is the sense of calling. Now, this this guy, Branch Rickey, very creative guy. You know the iconic um, St. Louis Cardinals logo? That was Branch Rickey's idea. You know how we have farm league teams like the Tulsa drillers or is it the Oilers that's hockey hockey baseball okay that was Branch Rickey's idea farm clubs to prepare people into coming into the major leagues very creative baseball executive what most people don't know is that Rickey and Robinson had a dark night of the soul about two years before the color barrier was broken and Robinson is thinking, I, I feel called to do this, but there's no possible way. And Branch Ricky is thinking, I feel I feel called to do this, but there's no possible way. And then a way was opened up. And uh, when Ricky and Robinson first got together to discuss this as a possibility, it was super secret. Not only was it super secret, but this. Discussion lasted for hours and hours. They were testing the waters to see if this was even a possibility. Well, it was a possibility. They signed, and these two guys became amazing, amazing friends. Uh, for the rest of Jackie Robinson's career, he says, I love Branch Ricky. Now, Robinson and Ricky both had been discipled in their own right. And there's no doubt that Branch Rickey discipled Jackie Robinson in the tangible details of how to be an African American baseball player in what had historically been an all-white league. Tangible discipleship. Now here's here's what most people don't know about, about this story. Most people don't know that this story was not the product of amazing secular forces coming together to break the color barrier. What happened with Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson was the product of discipleship. Carl Downs disciple Jackie Robinson. Branch Rickey was discipled by another influential individual. Branch Rickey discipled Jackie Robinson in the ways of moving into the league. This is the product of discipleship. And the cool thing about discipleship is that it not only causes somebody to grow spiritually, but it empowers tangible changes. You empower tangible changes in a person's life that shape a culture in a Godward direction. And that's what I want to talk about this morning as we dig into um, Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15 is is a unit of thought. And the essence is that um, Solomon is presenting an overall vision for discipleship with four highly, tangible results. Now, here's my hope. My hope is that you would grow in your vision to disciple somebody else. And what discipleship means is that you take responsibility for somebody else's spiritual growth. It may be for a season. It may be for a short season. It may be for a long season. It may be that you disciple them in an area of business. It may be you disciple them in an area of of a technical skill, but my heart is that you would become a disciple maker, a mentor, a guide. So, I want to give you the vision and then I want to give you the four tangible results. Here's the vision, everyone without exception needs a mentor, a guide, a coach. And we see that um, in in the book end verses in this passage. The passage begins in verse 5, ends in verse 12. Verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. And here's the bookend verse at the end. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. The passage begins and it ends with the same idea. How do I respond to instruction that will help me to grow? Now, let's go back to the idea. Why why was Proverbs written to begin with? It was a discipleship book. And the idea was that a dad and a mom in Israel would become the primary disciple makers of their children. Now, that's still true today. God commands parents to be primary disciple makers of their kids. However, today, disciple making has expanded. Um, It is something that a local church does, it's something that a small group does, it's something that happens organically in a business or in a small business or a large corporation. Discipleship was definitely parental in the ancient world, now it's expanded in the body of Christ. It can happen anywhere, at any time, any place, for any reason. But discipleship comes with an expectation. The expectation is not that I accumulate and then dump knowledge on somebody else. The idea is that I would make tangible changes in somebody's life just like Branch Rickey empowered Jackie Robinson to break the color barrier in baseball. Let's let's dig into, into these two verses. The word instruction means training that improves self-control. The idea is that something is wrong and the guide, the mentor, the disciple maker, the coach, works toward fixing it. For instance, why does a golf coach help a young golfer? Why does a baseball coach help a young baseball player? What do they do? do? Well, I I know with golf that some coaches will work with you after they videotaped you and they, they want to see how you address the ball. They want to see your back swing. They want to see what you do at the top. They want to see what your follow through looks like. They put that on a computer. They begin to an, an, analyze your swing, and finally the coach has an aha moment. He says, oh, I, I see what's wrong. What's wrong is your, your club face is not properly open. You sway at the top. I'm gonna to help you fix that. So a coach will identify what's not working and then help you develop the habits to do what you need to do. That's what happens in good coaching. That happens in all sorts of coaching. Let's say you experience financial troubles. Who do you go see? You go see a dentist? You go, go see an accountant. Let's say you've got, you've got troubles with, with your mouth, your teeth, who do you go see? You go, you go, you go see a dentist. Something's wrong, it's, it's, it's not working. When you have something that's wrong, you seek out the appropriate coach. When you have family troubles, you see a counselor. When you have leadership challenges, you seek out a leadership coach. Is it a shameful thing to admit that you have a problem and something's not working? A lot of people think that's the case. I'm not going to get help. I, I should be able to do this myself. That's not the heart of the Proverbs. The heart of the Proverbs is when you have a problem, you seek out the help of a mentor, a guide, or a coach. Now, one of the things you'll find in these verses is that the foolish person and the scoffer hates correction. They hate correction. Their attitude is, don't tell me what to do. Don't you speak into my life. I don't need you to instruct me about how to change. That's what the foolish person, the scoffer, does. What does the wise and discerning person do? They seek out correction. I was talking to my son a while back. I probably told you this illustration before. And my son is telling me that that the field of business coaching is exploding in Seattle. And the reason why is because uh, Microsoft and other organizations he's with PushPay. they hire young gifted coders the young gifted software engineers and the company will grow so fast that these young engineers now come to have five people underneath them ten people underneath them 25 people underneath them and he says they're young they're inexperienced they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to leadership so the leaders will gratefully hire business coaches to help these young leaders lead well. Because you can be a great software engineer, but if you can't lead the people underneath you, your division's not gonna grow. And so he says, man, th- this whole field is growing, it's, ex- it's exploding in, um, in his area in, in Seattle. You have to be willing to be open to instruction. I had a a sort of a sobering experience with this last summer. Um, As you know, a lot of times my my father and I have had a lot of sailing adventures. Well, we were in a 47-foot catamaran. Um, I was captaining the boat. We had just uh, snorkeled off the wreck of the Rhone. And that's the, about the size of the boat that we were in. And I was doing about eight things at once. And I'm, I'm at the helm. My dad looks down. And he, says, he says, Rod, your left engine's in forward. It really needed to be in reverse. Your left engine's in forward. In my mind, I said, what's he talking about? It's in reverse. And my son, who's up at the bow, sees that we're inching closer to the boat up ahead says, Dad, you're in forward. And I looked down at the throttle. I thought, oh, my gosh, my left engine's in forward. Put it back into reverse. Now, if if I had bristled against instruction, we would have hit the boat in front of us. Wise people are open to instruction. Foolish people and scoffers are not. Quick heart check. Where are you? Are you somebody who's open to instruction? Are you somebody who bristles at it and says, don't you tell me what to do? Foolish people are like that. Now, there's an important implication in both Proverbs 5, uh, 15 verse 5 and 15 verse 12, and it's this. If you are the kind of person that resents instruction, you've got to engage in the discipline of self confrontation. You know this what this one of self confrontation is? It's the mindset that says, self, your attitude about this is wrong. You have to change and become open to it. Self confrontation is the ability to be in the moment, in your, in your mind, in the moment, and seeing yourself almost like you're seeing yourself from without. And saying, self, you, you're, you're being really hard-hearted about this. Uh, you need to change and shift and be open to instruction. Now, I want you to notice the benefits that come from instruction in Proverbs 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Beautiful picture. The garland for your head is a victory wreath that was used in athletic competition, the pendant for your neck was a pendant of identification. That Those people who are open to instruction, they, they rack up victories in life. Those people who are open to instruction manifest the reality that they are identified with God, with Jesus Christ. Man, if you are not open to instruction, um, confront yourself because it's not a character quality that's that's good for you. So again, on a scale of one to 10, I want, just wanna ask you, how open are you to receiving instruction? And, and I would ask, how open are you to receiving the help of a mentor, a guide, a disciple maker? I go back to a really powerful time in my life. I was in, in high school. Um, my best friend and I from Southern Methodist University were at the home of our Bible study leader, Win Couchman, and Wynn and Bob Couchman led the youth group at, at, uh, at, Elmbrook, at Elmbrook Church, and, um, and something that she said made me resonate with discipleship, and I can remember thinking, man, Lord, I, I wanna be discipled. Give me somebody to disi- that would disciple me. So I go to Southern Methodist University and a guy named Pat Dillon um, one evening uh, says, if anybody wants to get together and meet with me for discipleship, let me know. And I'm in a beeline to Pat Dillon. I said, uh, I don't even know what this is, but I'm in. <laughs> and I met with him for two years. Then <clears throat> I decided, you know what, I've been poured into it for two years, I'm going to go to the Lambda Chi Alpha Fraternity House, my, my fraternity, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna look for two guys that I can disciple, Andy Smith, Brad Gurney. And we met at 10 p.m. for, as I recall, an entire school year. Um, and those two guys then went out, and they began to have influence in the lives of, of other people. Andy Smith went to the Philippines, Became a missionary to the Philippines. Brad Gurney stayed in Dallas. Business um, guy in Dallas, uh, owns a small small business there. Both of those guys had, had influence. And the people that, that they influenced, whom I don't know well, also had influence. And what, what Proverbs is saying is that everyone needs a coach, a mentor, a guide, a disciple maker. Everyone needs that. Now it, now it gets really fun because what Solomon does is he says that there are four tangible results that come uh, from, from this. First result is financial. First result is financial. These are tangible results, just like Branch Rickey's involvement in Jackie Robinson's life had tangible results. When you disciple somebody else, there will be tangible results, and the first result is financial. Discipleship tends to make people more disciplined in their finances. Verse six, in the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Here's the claim. The claim is if you are ordering your life around God's ways, you create a condition in your life where your financial assets will grow. Now look, this is not a guarantee This is not a promise. This is a general principle. The general idea in discipleship is that if I am discipled, I'm going to make wiser decisions with my finances and my finances will tend to grow. Zero in on that that term, the house of the righteous. What that's referring to is the entire household. It refers to the fields. It refers to the house. It refers to the children in the house. It refers to the animals that you have. It refers to your entire net worth, both relational net worth and financial net worth. And the idea is that if you are discipled, there will be some tangible results. Your assets will tend to grow. Now, why is that? Well, the reason why is that, is that you recognize that your money is really not your own. Your money's God's money. God is the one who, according to Deuteronomy 8, 8, 11, gives you the power to create wealth. God is the one who owns the heavens and the earth, Psalm 24, verse 1. God owns everything. Therefore, he owns your assets. Therefore, I need to manage my assets according to the way God's principles are. Now, this verse does not tell us how this works, but other verses do here's one proverbs 10 verse 4 a slack hand causes poverty the hand of the diligent makes rich i had a guy disciple me at one point in time and uh, he taught me some fantastic ideas about work ethic i've never never really had a slack hand that's not part of my personality but this guy taught me some things about work ethic that were really really important part of discipleship. Proverbs 11, 24. One gives freely that yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers one. One of the things that good disciple makers do is they talk about the benefits of regular financial giving. And one of the cool benefits is that you access the supernatural power of God. You give generously to God's work and surprisingly, financial resources come back to you. Another one. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. had a friend of mine call me some time ago, and he says, I, I have found an amazing financial opportunity. Um, I am going to be very wealthy within the, within the year. Is that a good idea? Um, he lost a lot of money doing what he did. Good discipleship encourages people along those lines. One of of my favorite ones is this. Know well the condition of your flocks. Give attention to your herds. You put that in our modern idea. Pay attention to your work. Pay attention to your income. Pay attention to your 401K, your 503B. Pay attention to your retirement assets. Riches don't last forever, nor does a crown endure for all generation. He's encouraging saving money. And then he says, uh, when the grass is gone, the new growth appears, and the vegetation in the mountains is gathered, lambs will provide your clothing. Goat's the price of a field. They be have goat's milk for your food, food of your household and maintenance for your girls. I- idea is, be a saver. Part of discipleship is encouraging people about how to wisely manage resources among which saving is a wise thing. So what does discipleship have to do with all this? Well, a good disciple maker usually is you know, thinking about, I'm going I'm to help this person learn how to pray better. I'm going to help this person get into the Word more. But a lot of times what the person needs is help financially because they've made some decisions that have hurt them financially. So part of discipleship is equipping people in the tangible areas of finance. Now here's a second tangible thing. You disciple somebody, and you will impart street smarts. In other words, wisdom will increase, uh, discipleship will increase a person's practical wisdom. Here's here's the verse. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the heart of the fools. He's talking about practical knowledge. He's talking about street smarts. He's talking about biblical street smarts from within a Judeo-Christian worldview. Biblical wisdom. I always love what you you read in Exodus chapter 31 and 36. These two guys, Bezalel and Oholiab. Bezalel and Oholiab were very gifted artists. They were the Michelangelo of the ancient world. They were the Mozart of the ancient world. Very gifted artists. What it says is that God put skill into them. Did Mozart have skill? Did Michelangelo have skill? That term skill is the Hebrew word wisdom. In other words, God gave them practical skill. God gave them skill in tangible areas. God gave them the tangible, practical skills to equip other people in their uh, practical, tangible skills as well. You guys ever seen Mike Rowe on on the show Dirty Jobs? Mike Rowe always doing things that nobody else wants to do. And Mike Rowe talks about the fact that there are things that need to be done in our country that not many people want to do. He talks about these people who've got practical, tangible, street smart skills and work that are making our economy go. And not not many people want to do them. But people who do do them, can become quite wealthy in time. I want you to notice an important implication of um, this verse in the verb that that he uses. The mature person um, is generous with that knowledge. His lips are open. He's not stingy with that skill. He's generous with that skill. Um, I encountered this with my son, Jared, a while back. I was trying to... Jared is is really good at internet marketing and I was trying to connect two programs together I could not do it I called Jared who's driving on a crazy North African Street and he says hang on dad let me pull pull into a parking lot let me tell you how to do this and he says just just listen to me and follow everything I tell you to do okay And within five minutes, I connected these two programs together. He was generous, generous with his knowledge. Disciple makers, good disciple makers, are generous with their knowledge. What about the heart of the fool? Uh, The heart of the fool, according to this this verse here, um, now, he's not gaining more knowledge. He's not generous with what he has. Not going to change the world that way. Okay, third result is love. Discipleship empowers a growing love for God. Uh, Here's what it says. The sacrifice to the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. You see those two verbs, acceptable and love. A good disciple maker is going to empower the person that he or she is discipling to encounter the love of God in a much deeper way. You know what's really intimidating about about these, these verses here is the infinite knowledge of God. I mean, God knows what I'm thinking. God knows my motives on the inside. That could be really intimidating if you felt like God did not accept you. It's like David's whole idea. Lord, you know everything about me. I can't comprehend. How you know everything and still love me. So here's how love works. Love works. Love is the combination of full knowledge and full acceptance. If I know you, but I don't accept you, how does it make you feel? Judged. If I accept you, but don't know you, how does it make you feel? It's kind of shallow, because maybe if I did come to know you, I wouldn't accept you. The way love works is that knowledge and acceptance come together and form this amazing condition inside us called unconditional love. And a good disciple maker empowers the person that he or she is discipling to, to encounter the unconditional love of God. There's an amazing story about John Wesley that uh, I I just, I I, I love this um, story. It's a story about discipleship. The story goes like this. Shortly after John Wesley arrived in Georgia in 1726, Wesley sought advice about his relationship with God from a Moravian pastor named August Spannenberg. So Spannenberg, like a good coach or mentor, disciple maker, asked some questions. He said, Mr. Wesley, do you feel... YOU HAVE THE WITNESS OF